You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and joining me is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hello. Back for a third time. We've not been taken off air yet. That's good, isn't it? It is. Episode three, Revenge of the Facts. Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week and he's going to share them with us today. So what's the Institute been up to this week, Chris? Well, as with a lot of organisations at this tumultuous time, the Institute is in dire need of funds. So we've been doing um, some fundraising activities this week. Oh, right. Cool. So this is like what, like a summer fate or have you made a plan? I've got two words for you, Piper. Go on. Jumble sale. Oh, oh, I'm going to have to sit on my hands. <laughs> yes, that's right. We had a jumble sale. Right, we did our um, due diligence as well, researched the important aspects of jumble sale. So we had all the classic things. We were selling board games with some of the pieces missing. Yes, that's important. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to get it right. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a stall comprised entirely of vinyl copies of ABBA's greatest hits. Great. It's like I'm there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> And more fairy cakes than you could uh, shake a fairy at. Are they dry? Please tell me that they're really dry. Oh, I mean, you would need to chug at least three gallons of water after eating one of those babies, I can tell you. Oh, well, um, I'm kind of upset that I wasn't invited, really. Well, it was a very uh, select pool of um, of donors who were invited to the Munchausen jumble sale. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm merely a lowly podcast presenter i wouldn't be able to donate anything so i completely understand (laughs) that brings us round to our first fact of the episode uh which is chris yes um the ancient egyptians once sent a cat as a diplomat a cat yes a a cat a cat a cat yes a small quadrupedal predator i feel like we're gonna have to get some detail on this chris uh, yes, uh, so this was uh, during the reign of, and you have to excuse my ancient Egyptian pronunciation here, it's a bit rusty, the reign of Thutmose I, who reigned from uh, 1506 to 1493 BCE. He sent his beloved cat, Bubastis, overseas to oversee a trade deal with the nearby kingdom of Nubia. So they sent a cat to oversee an actual political trade deal. Did they do that on purpose? Well, it seems so. I mean, there's a few theories on what was going on here. It's known that uh, Thutmose was like very fond of Bubastis. He took the cat everywhere with him. He was even reported to take advice from the cat. Oh, we're not sure exactly how that happened. I'm imagining a kind of scenario where he just like bend his head down and go, what's that, Bubastis? Oh, like the Sooty and Sweep show? Uh, yes. So one explanation is that uh, Thutmose himself sent Bibastus because he was convinced of how wise the cat was. The other theory is that his advisors convinced Thutmose to send the cat abroad as a diplomat in order to get him away from the pharaoh and make him more amenable to the advisor's advice. So a bit of like palace intrigue, if you will. That's interesting. So it's almost like um, almost like they're trying to control the narrative politically then. Exactly, yeah. Uh, 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 which does make it sound a bit like a, a Disney film or something, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to get down that route again, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I always want films to be made of everything you talk about. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is lovely chickens can't see cubes cinematic universe. Yeah. I'm sure whoever is listening out there will be just as excited by that as I am. <laughs> um, so, wait. So, okay. So, whatever reason this cat was sent to go and sort out a trade deal with with um, Nubia. So, how, how did it go? Well, not very well, apparently. Bebastus seems to have negotiated a rather subpar trade deal and the practice of sending cat diplomats or diplicats, if you will, was a stop before it even really began. Okay, well, that's kind of sad. I, 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 when you first sent this fact through, I, I was quite excited by the concept of uh, diplicats. Um, so there was only really one diplicat. Uh, yes. So uh, what happened to her in the end? Uh, well, unfortunately, due to her, um, her unsatisfactory performance, uh, she was executed, which seems rather harsh. Does a little, I think. <laughs> well, the execution would actually seem to uh, corroborate the idea that it was the advisors who had this idea of sending her overseas, uh, because they must have known that a cat isn't going to negotiate much of anything other than I don't know fish and catnip. Yeah. So they were probably counting on Bubastis not doing a good job, coming back, angering the pharaoh, and you know she gets you know put out of the picture, and the pharaohs. You know, all theirs. Right. So I this is this is quite an exciting conspiracy. And yes, quite Disney, I think. <laughs> we need a love interest for the cat or for the pharaoh, maybe. Or maybe the pharaoh and the cat. Oh, I sort of like a, I feel like maybe we might be getting into bestiality territory here. Well, it worked for Twilight. That is true. Very good point. <laughs> and everyone loves Twilight. Especially the bestiality part. <laughs> that's entirely true um okay so it's fair game right <laughs> film rights chris let's go i'll call warner brothers thank you thank you yeah um you're more likely to get results than i am <laughs> how did we actually find out about uh bubastis then because her tomb was discovered uh, fairly recently as we know the egyptians loved cats yes uh, they would mummify their cats uh, there's several like cat graveyards throughout Egypt. And it seems even though uh, she disappointed the pharaoh in this instance, uh, she was still accorded the honour of having her own tomb. Right. And so this was discovered recently. It was a fairly small tomb, made smaller by the fact that it was full of tons and tons of string. String? Yeah, it seems likely that this was the result of her negotiations. She went over to Nubia and said, you know, we'll take all your string and, you know, we'll give you our, you know, dogs or something. Right. It's not having a use for tons of string. They just stuffed it in her tomb, apparently. Okay. Well, I'm sure that would have made the afterlife version of Bubastis very happy. What cat doesn't like tons of string? (laughs) Well, I mean, possibly. Or, you know, it might have just been a reminder of her failure. You know, she's got to drag all this string around her in the afterlife as a constant reminder of what she did. Well, I'm sad now. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm not here to, you know, please you, Piper. I'm here to dole out definite, real truth that hasn't been made up by me. Ooh, I know a fun question that will cheer me up. What's that? Do you, um, do you, do you prefer cats or dogs? Um, I mean, I love both. I think ultimately I'm probably a dog person more than a cat person 
Um, if only because dogs seem more consistent. Because cats are quite fickle, aren't they? I mean, one minute they'll be sat on your lap, quietly being petted, and the next they're, you know, digging their claws into you and hissing. Oh, okay. Sorry, when you said consistent, I thought you meant like, you know, they're not always, they're not always cats. Like that, they are definitely always cats. They're consistent in that. Well, I mean, I've not observed a cat for like long enough a period of time to see if it, you know, morphs into anything else. I suppose that's true. Yeah, and and this is a this is a, again a reflection on the thorough execution of research from the institute. In order to be able to answer that question properly, you would need to be able to observe a cat for an incredibly long amount of time. So I completely understand your candor on that. Perhaps we'll um, invest some of our funds from the jumble sale into some kind of cat cam in order to observe a cat for its entire lifespan or something. Yeah, that that sounds very a very valuable use of your time. It does. <laughs> so that brings us on to uh, fact two. Why don't you tell us a bit about what this one is then, Chris? Okay. The Nazis published their own comic book superhero called Hitlermensch or Hitlerman. Okay, so this is possibly my favourite fact you've told me so far. <laughs> so ahead of World War II, there was obviously a fair amount of Nazi propaganda aimed at children, but I've not heard about this particular one. So please tell me there's a whole bunch of these stories. Oh, yeah. He appeared in the popular anthology Inspirender Geschichten von Flicht und Verflichtung, which was inspiring stories of duty and obligation. Kind of the uh, Nazi equivalent of the um, American anthologies like uh, Strange Adventures or um, All-Star Comics. So it was just part of an anthology, so it was presumably quite short. I, I want to hear about Hitlerman. Yeah, um, <laughs> Tell me so, about Hitlerman. <laughs> so um, Hitlerman was actually um, like a Maximilian Müller, um, a young boy in the Hitler Youth, when he donned his fake toothbrush moustache and shouted his famous catchphrase, Zur Erwigen Herlichkeit des Vaterlandes, which meant for the glory of the fatherland. Um, he transformed into a three metre tall, muscle bound version of the Fuhrer. <laughs> well, I know I've got it written down, but it's still really funny. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> presumably he, uh, Hitlerman or Hitlermensch, uh, didn't fight crime in the way we'd understand it being a superhero version of a fascist dictator. But, like, what was Hitlerman able to do? Well, his only superpowers appear to be uh, super strength and the ability to extemporise rousing nationalist speeches. So this wasn't so much about, as I say, fighting crime or, you know, like the standard superhero stuff. This was, this was just about basically him being Hitler. It's not entirely dissimilar to some of the uh, Christian superheroes you see nowadays, like Bible Man and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and obviously it would be hard not to draw the comparison to the childhood favourite Banana Man. Uh, yes, or indeed Shazam, who incidentally fought a villain called Captain Nazi. Right, so if we were to make a <laughs> film of this, we could have a crossover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So have you read any of the stories, Chris? Um, a few of them do survive. They appear to comprise mostly of Hitlerman beating up various national stereotypes. Characters like Uncle Sam, a version of the guy from the poster. 
Yeah. And um, Der Melonen Bandit, which was the bowler hat bandit, a stereotypical Englishman. Well, now I really want to read this. <laughs> yeah, um, he would basically just punch them a load and then he would lecture them on Aryan superiority and moustache grooming. <laughs> well, yeah, so as I say, whenever, whenever you tell me things like this, I always want to see the movie. It's always in my head as a thing. So was there a franchise plan for Hitler Mensch at all? Well, yeah, I mean, what could have been the first comic book movie? Lenny Riefenstahl, the propagandist director of A Triumph of the Will, etc., was actually set to direct a Hitler Man film before uh, funding fell through due to the war effort. Oh, OK. So it nearly happened then. It did. And it would have been, as I say, like possibly the first comic book movie. I mean, arguably, it's probably good that it wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'd rather have... I mean, I think... I mean, if I remember correctly, I think uh, there was a Batman film in the 40s that was the first. And I think I'd rather have a Batman film as the first comic book movie than a Hitler Man film as the first comic book movie. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the um, huge fan of dark comedy in me kind of wants it to have been the other way. But <laughs> but yes, yes, obviously, Batman was the better choice. Are you Batman, Chris, by the way? Um, am I Batman? Hmm. Uh, no, the Batman's a myth just to scare criminals. What are you talking about, Piper? You're crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry I brought it up. I'm so <laughs> Do you know if there are any other superheroes that Germany has produced, like Nazis or otherwise? The stories that survive do include the occasional like ally for Hitler man, including um, Hitlerkind, a super strong baby with a toothbrush moustache. There was a Gertie Gestapo, um, a female super spy, and perhaps most memorably, a group of intelligent rodents working in the Nazi propaganda department called Goebbels Gerbils. God, I swear I'm the biggest fan of this podcast. <laughs> I find this way funnier than anyone else does. <laughs> Goebbels gerbils. Wow. Goebbels gerbils. What will these Nazis think of next? No, don't answer that. Uh, no, uh, discretion is the better part of valor here. That brings us inexorably round to fact number three, which is, Chris... Yes, the UK's supermarket price wars once escalated into an actual war. Okay, so this is interesting because we all know how ferociously competitive supermarkets can be. Oh, yes. Particularly in, in England, but all across the world. I mean, budget supermarkets, Lidl and Aldi or Aldi or Waldi, however you say it. What? Waldi? Out, everyone pronounces them differently and, and so I'm just this is equal opportunities I'm making sure that everyone gets a chance here and no one phones in telling me how much of an idiot I am anyway carry on so okay. um, <laughs> so miraculously despite this being a recorded podcast we have a caller um, so I'm going to push this little button in the front of me that I didn't realise until now what it did uh, but it says line one on it so I'm going to push this now 
Um, hello, caller. You are live on air, sort of. Hello. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me? No, I'm not. I'm not. I was choking. Um, who am I talking to? I'm Bob. Hi, Bob. Um, thanks for calling the uh, the uh, Chickens Can't See Cubes podcast. It's very nice to hear from you. Um, what 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 could you possibly want? I just wanted to say that the way you pronounced Waldy really offended me. And I think you're an idiot. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't be more apologetic. I'll never listen to this podcast again. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm going back to Joe Rogan. Bye. All right. Bye. Sorry. OK, bye. Well, that was lovely. That was our first caller. Isn't that exciting? I, f- I feel like we've made it now, Chris. Are you still there, Chris? Yeah, I'm about to step out of the room there. I don't actually hear what happened. Oh, uh, we just had a caller. I feel like maybe they weren't particularly happy with something. I think it was something you said. Anyway, should we move on? <laughs> just to clarify things, when I stepped out of the room, I wasn't fighting crime just as a bet. Just to clear things up. Thank you. Um, none of us were wondering that. Okay, good. Excellent. So budget supermarkets, uh, Lidl and Aldi, were set up by rival brothers who wanted to turn their arguments into capitalist ventures. But disputes are usually about prices or products and are sorted out through lawsuits and uh, settlements. Um, what happened here, Chris? Where, how did it start? So this was in uh, 2001 in a retail park in Bradford uh, where there happened to be both an Asda and a Tesco. Ah. An Asda employee made a comment to a Tesco employee while they were both having a cigarette out in the car park. And it led to a four-day skirmish. So this all started from just a single comment said from one employee of the UK-based Asda store, which for our, for our American listeners, who I'm sure there are many, is basically our, our version of Walmart, so it's owned by the Walmart family, to a Tesco employee. Mm-hmm. Yes. What what could possibly have been the comment? Uh, the Asda employee made a remark about uh, the provenance of Tesco's economy sausages, and apparently saying they were more horse anus than pig anus. To which the Tesco employee uh, made a retort about the nighttime proclivities of Mrs. Asda. Right. So it turned it turned pretty nasty fairly quickly. Then. Oh yeah, straight to the um. The wife stuff, yeah. So presumably this was a, a f- four days of fighting in a Bradford retail park. So presumably the public weren't in any danger. I mean, collateral damage would have been huge in a retail park. Oh, yeah. Um, the park was like almost immediately declared a militarised zone. And regional managers from both supermarkets came in to oversee the uh, the conflict. I'm just trying to get my head around how this would work. So... <laughs> So you've got you've essentially got a supermarket, two supermarkets in a car park, um, and supermarkets aren't particularly known for having like automatic weapons stashed in their stock rooms. How did how did the battle work? That's all the information is largely unconfirmed, based on like eyewitness testimony and secondhand information. Mm. Uh, so there's unconfirmed reports of retail assistants using the supermarkets' wide range of affordable groceries as extemporised weapons. Oh, wait, so it was essentially... It was essentially a massive food fight. 
Uh, well, yeah, food. Uh, you've got what toiletries? You've got condiments. Uh, you've got cutlery. I mean, that could you know do some damage. Well, I'm here for that. That sounds fantastic. I mean, I've been to Asda. They've got some great stuff in that middle aisle. Oh, are you working for Asda now? I mean, I'm not saying that they're our sponsor, but if they were, I'd be really good at talking about their additional products. <laughs> so this this skirmish, as you put it, went on for four days. How did it end? Well, it seemed like it wasn't going to end, but it was effectively brought to an end when a crack team of Poundland mercenaries were sent in to assassinate the highest-ranking managers on both sides. So there were actual deaths in this scenario then. So at the moment, it, it, until now, I've been thinking of this as some sort of silly food fight, but actually that's Well, yeah, but serious. as we've said, Piper, there's, you know, there's, there's knives in supermarkets. There's out-of-date food in supermarkets. Yeah, but I always think the best of people, Chris. I always think, you know... If it, you know, even even if it is quite a serious issue, you know these these people have been, have been obviously quite quite damaged by the hurtful words of the Astor employee to the Tesco employee or about about their mother. I don't know. I feel I feel like if I worked at Tesco or Asda or any supermarket, I feel it would be way above my pay grade to start. Uh, a violent and lethal war. So I, I guess I thought, you know, I, I was quite happy by the fact that you said that they used food. They used, like, produce. I, I, I think I'm, like, potentially quite happy in just sort of putting my own narrative on this and just thinking of it as it is. Right, but even if they were just using food piper, I mean, food comes in cans, in tins, in jars. Have you ever had a jar thrown at your head, piper? It does some damage. Yeah, I ha I have. I thank you for bringing that up again, Chris. And, <laughs> and you know perfectly well that um, the last year's Christmas party was an absolute disaster. Oh, don't even talk to me about last year's Christmas party, Piper. I've still got the scars. Yeah, I'm I, I'm sorry about that. Um, it turns out Brussels sprouts could do quite a lot of damage, actually. Especially when frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so 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 there were actual deaths in this skirmish. I will have to come to terms with that myself, and that's fine. But um, that's something everybody has to come to terms with when it comes to uh, war, Piper. Yes, and um, as I'm sure you can imagine, I'm not particularly used to these sorts of narratives. All I do is talk to you. <laughs> I, I just ask you questions. That's my entire life. I, I just wait until you call me, and then we talk about podcast stuff and, and facts. And then you sit in a dark room for a week. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I'm not used to this kind of violent language. Um, <laughs> so um, with that in mind, um, to educate me, um, were there any particular uh, highlights of this, um, this four-day war? Uh, well, the first time the two sides' trolley cavalries clashed was quite a sight to behold. Trolley cavalries, okay. Yeah, uh, a retail assistant uh, riding trolleys armed with uh, baguette bayonets. This is getting quite medieval. I'm. What do they call that when with the the medieval thing with the bayonets? Uh, jousting. Jousting. Okay, so this was basically trolley jousting, is what you're talking about. I mean, no, because jousting is like two people are riding towards each other with lances. Uh, this was more like 
uh, groups of horsemen clashing, but they were on trolleys with baguettes. Well, it's thoroughly exciting. <laughs> as long as no one hurt themselves, obviously. Okay, well, that's great. Any other, any other highlights? There was the Burger Behemoth. Well, now you've got my attention. Some say it was a pile of rotting meat right, given a mockery of life by some unholy ritual. Others say it was a stockroom worker with loads of frozen burgers strapped around him. Either way, it was terrifying. <laughs> well, this is very exciting uh, and, and arguably puts Bradford on the map. Um, well, I think if you look at a map, Piper, you can already see Bradford. Really? Yeah, it's just around... Um, um, I want to say Leeds. It's not far from my house, Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's li- li- really, really close to where I live. Okay, so you must know it's on a map then. <laughs> That's actually a good point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't really look at maps very often. I know it exists and, you know, I've been there, but like... <laughs> you don't exist? No, I know it exists. <laughs> oh, I thought you said I don't exist. What? No, I do. Don't I? I- I'm sure I do. I mean, I think you do. Oh, God damn it, Chris. Let's not get onto this existential thing again because you. <laughs> Every week there's an existential crisis. And it's always mine, my existential <laughs> crisis. Ah, oh, right. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm definitely real. We've established that. Okay, good. So, uh, given that this, uh, this was quite an extreme uh, form of uh, supermarket rivalry. Uh, does uh, supermarket training now generally involve military combat routines to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? Quite the opposite, actually. Due to this incident, supermarkets are now subject to kind of their own version of the Treaty of Versailles, where they're basically forbidden from taking anything that even resembles military action. So obviously that's like the opposite uh, strategy, but that could potentially work quite well as long as everyone on all sides follows that code. So is this an actual treaty? Not so much a treaty as a government legislation, but going back to whether or not it'll work. I mean, the Treaty of Versailles only worked up until a certain Austrian house painter got into his head to uh, remilitarize Germany. So I think all it'll take is some trumped-up regional manager to decide to, you know, reinstate the trolley cavalry and the whole thing could start off again. These things are, are delicate. So any any sort of treaty or gov- government legislation is, is, is a very delicate thing. And, and, and like you say, all it takes is a regional manager who's annoyed at the amount of paperwork that he has to do. And, and I think this is possibly... And the fact that he can't kill... Uh, his rival's retail assistants. Yeah. Yeah, which is which has got to be really annoying. I know. For the day-to-day grind. I mean, we all think about it. You might, Piper, I don't. I'm a pacifist. What? No, neither do I, obviously. So, that brings us around to our final fact of the show, uh, which is Chris. Yes, the first free gift inside a box of cereal was a cock ring in boxes of cornflakes. 
so cereal companies have for a long time used free gifts as a way to entice customers to buy their bland food products. For example, uh, cycle clips, badges, collectibles, musical instruments, gastric bands, nuclear waste. Oh, I remember collecting all the nuclear waste from Box of the Frosties when I was a kid. Had the whole collection. Yeah, yeah. And leukemia. Yes, me too. <laughs> Great. What memories. What a time. Different time, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. But I've um, I've not heard of the Cochrane free gift as as I mean as if it's, it was the the first one. So as most people know, cornflakes were invented by uh, William Kellogg to discourage people from masturbating. Yeah. But um, as people continued to masturbate even after cornflakes were invented, the Cochrane was supposed to be another step you could take to prevent yourself from you know fiddling yourself. Okay, okay, so it's an addition to the original mission of William Kellogg. Yeah, presumably you would put it on your flaccid member and it would prevent you from getting, you know, excited. Right. So um, was the original cornflakes idea not working as a masturbatory deterrent on its own then? No, I mean, so cornflakes are like supposed to be bland. Because Kellogg believes, like, overly flavourful food, like, stoked people's passions. Right. Uh, but I don't know about you, Piper, but cornflakes do absolutely nothing to quell my desire to stick my hand down my trousers. No, I think I... I, I essentially, really, when you talk about breakfast cereal and you talk about masturbation, I'm almost confused that they're talked about in the same breath. I don't know how it would have any impact on my sexual desires whatsoever. Uh, well, um, I think Kellogg was a religious man, so that might go some way to explaining his bizarre beliefs. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it marketed to consumers of cornflakes, this cockring idea? So this was actually an early example of licensed merchandising. The cockrings were like tied in with the popular comic strip at the time, The Cats and Yammer Kids, which was um, a comic strip about two or three brothers who, you know, got up to various shenanigans. So the cock rings were, you know, Cats and Yammer Kids cock rings, presumably to get, you know, the young people interested. Interested in not wanking. Not, yeah, not, not interested in cock rings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, essentially, what you're saying is the cock ring represents the purity ring in 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 a masturbatory sense. Uh, yes, I suppose it does. Yeah, that's a good point. Good. Thank you. I'm glad I'm right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it should be a banner coming down. Piper was right. <laughs> oh, you can see the indoor fireworks as we speak. They're shit, actually. Um, <laughs> was there so was there a so was there a tie-in episode of the comic strip at all? There was a strip printed on the back of the boxes, uh, tied into the promotion. Uh, the story was Hans and Fritz, the eponymous kids, have uh, gone blind, presumably from all the wanking they'd been doing. Right. Um, and their mother gives them both a cock ring. Soon after which their sight is restored. And they vow never to touch themselves again. So this was the 
offer that started the trend of free gifts in Syria? What what came next after the cock ring? Uh, well, not next. Um, during the cock ring promotion, Kellogg's main rival at the time, uh, Quaker Oats, started a direct rival to Kellogg's promotion. They were giving away pornography in their boxes of oats as a way of enticing people away from the uh, celibacy promotion and into, you know, more illicit acts embodied by their oats, apparently. Oh, so your oats. There you go, there's a joke for you. That was a good joke. Well done, Chris. <laughs> oh, it's nice it's nice to know that we've got some 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 improvised comedy within this. <laughs> In this very serious fact based podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well sometimes everyone needs a palate cleanser, don't they? Um, so Kellogg's rival was Quaker Oats, essentially. So so Quaker Oats weren't continuing the anti-masturbatory narrative. Uh, no, they were offering an alternative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they were quite literally offering pornography to children in their serials. I mean, I say pornography. It was all rather tame, even for uh, the porn of the time. You know, just like pictures of a, a flash of ankle. Or maybe, you know, petticoats an inch shorter than usual. That makes sense. Slightly less worried about putting this out now. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, Quaker Oats. They, they, they were started by, as the name suggests, Quakers, which is a religi- religious movement. So it sounds like, yeah, that would have been quite tame porn. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what, what sort of era are we talking? We're talking 100 years ago or so. Uh, this was, I believe it started in 1912. So more than a hundred years ago, um, have you seen any of this uh, Quaker porn? There's a couple of examples in private collections that I've had the privilege of viewing, and I can tell you, I did not have to take a cold shower afterwards. It's very tame. Okay, okay. Well, it's good to know that we've evolved, so we can do a little better now. Chris, um, what's the strangest thing you've ever found in your cereal? Oh, that's a good question, Piper. Let me think. Probably the strangest thing. Um, I once found the user manual for a Vauxhall Astro GTE in a box of Golden Grahams. Wow, that must have been a massive box of Golden Grahams. Or a very small user manual. It was actually, there was no Golden Grahams in the box of Golden Grahams. It was just a user manual in a cereal box. Did you not think this is quite a heavy cereal box? Well, honestly, I thought, wow, I've got all the prizes in this one. <laughs> I've hit the jackpot. Right. And do you own a Vauxhall GT? I have never owned a car in my life. Do you feel like maybe you would have preferred the Golden Grahams? Um, they probably would have tasted better than the Vauxhall Astro user manual, yes. It wasn't very good. <laughs> I was still hungry afterwards. Okay, that's it. Uh, you've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton. Chris, are we able to find the Institute on the internet yet? Well, Kyle's been on holiday this week, so there's been no movement there. I say holiday, I mean, you know, there's lockdown, so he's just been sat at home doing computery stuff. Or maybe not, I mean... 
suppose for an IT guy, using computers at home would be a bit of a bossman's holiday. So maybe you just sat there with an abacus or something. Okay, great. Well, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Great, great. Well, um, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. I'm going to do that again because that sounded shit, didn't it? I want to actually make the uh, make the audience feel like I give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck off. Go on, stop listening. You weren't really listening anyway. You're playing on your phone while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's playing. Fucking Candy Crush. That's an up-to-the-minute reference. It was. That was very good. <laughs>